0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to history of the 90s early and ad free on Amazon music included with prime. When I say Mike Tyson, what do you think of a high pitched lisping voice, a big face tattoo, ear biting. Then again, maybe you know him from the Scooby-Doo like cartoon called Mike Tyson mysteries, or maybe you immediately think of this. Thanks again, champ. And, uh, Again, we are so sorry we stole your tiger. Man, don't worry about it, man. Like you
1: said, we all do dumb and <laughs> up.
0: <laughs> Most likely, you think of Mike Tyson as a caricature of an out-of-control celebrity whose life has spiraled in so many different and strange directions that it's hard to keep up. As sports writer Bill Simmons put it, when celebrities allow their reputation to become so bizarre that any story about them is believable these celebrities have entered the Tyson zone. But before all of this, Mike Tyson was a Goliath in the boxing world, a giant in sports throughout the 80s and the 90s, and also a convicted rapist. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and today on History of the 90s, we're looking back at Iron Mike, the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) Boxing in the 1990s was at a peak. In fact, the 90s are considered the last great era of heavyweight boxing. Fighters like Evander Holyfield, Lennox Lewis, Riddick Bowe, and of course, Mike Tyson dominated the sport. Tyson was compared to all the greats. Some said he was even better. Stronger than Muhammad Ali, quicker than Rocky Marciano, and more polished than George Foreman. Even his opponents didn't want to beat him, they just wanted to survive. By the beginning of the 90s, Tyson, the baddest man on the planet, Kid Dynamite, Iron Mike, whatever you chose to call him, was on his way to becoming one of the greatest fighters of all time. He was undefeated after 37 fights. Let that sink in 37 fights. And he'd been the heavyweight champion of the world for four years. He seemed, well, indestructible. This
1: guy was Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Jose Bautista, Austin Matthews, um, Donovan Bailey, Ben Johnson, all rolled into one. But with a violent uh, edge, surly edge, um, really not a nice person, Uh, just a real mean guy who wanted to do destruction.
0: That's Mark Hebsher, the longtime sports broadcaster and host of the podcast Hebsey on Sports. Hebsey says Tyson was a train wreck just waiting to happen. And things started going off the rails in February 1990. That's when 23-year-old Mike Tyson squared off with Buster Douglas. When Tyson stepped into the ring in Tokyo on February 11, 1990, he had never lost a fight as a professional boxer. And as a result, he was the overwhelming favorite in the title match.
1: I mean, he was a 43 to one favorite, Mike Tyson. For you, you had to bet $43 to win $1. He had squashed every opponent up to that point. He had he'd beaten everybody up in the, in the first round or second round, pretty much. Michael Spinks, he destroyed in 90 seconds. Larry Holmes, he, he obliterated these pretty good fighters.
0: Leading up to the Buster-Douglas fight, some wondered if Tyson was even taking it seriously. At a press conference held before the fight, Tyson showed up a half hour late and he put on his Walkman during questions from reporters. But, you know, that was pretty much par for the course. Tyson often put his head down on the table during news conferences while others answered questions for him. In the fight against Douglas, he stood to make $6 million dollars. But the young boxer and his legendary promoter Don King were already looking ahead to the next payoff. Tyson was scheduled to make $20 million to fight Evander Holyfield in Atlantic City in July in what was expected to be the biggest pay-per-view event in history. The fight against Douglas, well, it was just a warm-up. Nearly 40,000 people attended the Tyson-Douglas fight at the Tokyo Dome. Ringside seats were just over 1,000 bucks, And they were snapped up by Japanese corporations and by celebrities like the Rolling Stones and a New York real estate tycoon who you may have heard of by the name of Donald Trump.
1: Introducing the undefeated, undisputed, heavyweight champion of the world, the one and only Iron Mike Tyson.
0: From the start of the Tokyo fight, commentators said that Tyson lacked fire and intensity. Douglas, on the other hand, was quick and explosive. Despite Tyson's questionable performance, he still managed to knock down Douglas in the eighth round. Douglas landed on his back, then struggled up at the count of nine. But Douglas was far from out. In the next round, he hit Tyson so many times that Tyson's left eye swelled shut. Then in the 10th round, everyone watched in disbelief as Douglas landed a right uppercut followed by a left and a right to the head. Tyson dropped in a heap to the floor. The referees stood over Tyson who lay flat on his back and they counted him out. was the biggest upset in boxing history? This is one of those moments from the 90s that people use as a sort of timestamp. Lots of us remember where we were when Douglas knocked out Tyson. It may have just been boxing, but it transcended sports and became news. When Tyson finally rolled over and pushed himself up, his mouthpiece hung from his teeth and he looked completely dazed. He managed to walk out of the ring, but then his cornermen had to carry him the rest of the way. Reporters mobbed the dressing room, but they were told to get lost. Five hours later, Tyson re-emerged from the dressing room, along with promoter Don King and the rest of his entourage. Wearing wraparound sunglasses and a beige tracksuit, Tyson told reporters that he believed in his heart that he was still the heavyweight champion of the world. And he wasn't just saying that, he actually thought he should have won. Let me explain. Remember when Douglas went down at the end of the eighth round? Well, Team Tyson claimed that Douglas was down for more than 10 seconds, so they lodged a formal protest. But you see, in boxing, a 10 count doesn't mean an exact 10 seconds. It isn't timed like a 100-meter race. It's simply a referee count to 10, and long counts like this one happen in boxing all the time. So, not surprisingly, the protest didn't go anywhere. Douglas remained the champ, setting the stage for an epic rematch. So, what happened? How did Buster Douglas take down Iron Mike? Well, Mark Hepsher has a theory. Oh, I
1: know what happened in that fight. I mean, Buster, his mother, had died of cancer uh, a few weeks before the fight. And there was talk that he wouldn't be able to fight, and he was just a man on a mission. And, um, you know, Tyson was kind of lackadaisical. He was unbeaten. He probably took Douglas for granted, and Douglas had the fight of his life. Buster Douglas was never the same before or since.
0: Others also blame Tyson's flamboyant promoter, Don King, who had wiggled his way into Tyson's career and taken over just about everything, cutting out everyone who may have been able to keep the young boxer grounded. did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Levine? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a minute here to look back at where Mike Tyson came from, how he ended up in the boxing ring in the first place. Well, Tyson was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1966. His father took off when Tyson was just two years old, leaving his mom to raise three kids in a tough crime-ridden neighborhood. By 11 years old, Tyson was robbing stores and mugging people on the streets. And he was arrested 38 times before he turned 13. But then his life took a pivotal turn. Tyson was sent to juvie in upstate New York. And one of the counselors there was a former professional boxer and he ran a boxing program for troubled teens. Tyson begged to be part of the program, and when they finally let him in the ring, everyone was blown away by his natural talent. Eventually, the counselor running the program called in legendary boxing manager and trainer, Cus D'Amato. He took Tyson under his wing, not just as a trainer, but as a surrogate father. After he was released, Tyson's mom died, so he moved in with D'Amato and his family in the Catskills. D'Amato became Tyson's legal guardian. D'Amato put Tyson on a rigorous training schedule with a goal of making the 1984 Olympic team. When that failed, it was time for plan B. Tyson turned pro and almost immediately earned the nickname Iron Mike because of his strength and his ability to quickly knock out opponents. He won every single match he fought, throwing unbelievably hard punches. But Tyson's success was soon overshadowed by the death of Cus in 1985. The man who made the young boxer would never see the champion he was about to become. In November 1986, at the age of 20, Tyson knocked out Trevor Burbick in 5 minutes and 35 seconds and became the youngest ever heavyweight champion. Guys from D'Amato's crew had taken over Tyson's career. Kevin Rooney was his trainer, Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton were his co-managers. But then, in yet another shock, Jim Jacobs died. Tyson was completely blindsided and devastated by yet another loss. And that's when Don King began to move in on the young fighter. At first, he was just Tyson's promoter, but he soon pushed out Caton and also became his manager fully in charge of his career. At the same time, Tyson had gotten married to actress Robin Givens. You may remember the couple's high-profile relationship. It was tabloid fodder taken to the next level, thanks to an interview they did with Barbara Walters. During the televised interview, Givens accused Tyson of abuse and said her husband was a manic depressive. For his part, Tyson, a man who was a beast in the boxing ring, sat expressionless with his arm around Givens as she described the problems in their marriage. He is... He's got a side to him that's scary.
1: Michael is intimidating, to say the least. I think that there's... There's a time when he cannot control his temper, and that's frightening to
0: me or to my mother. Um and to anyone around. Shortly after the interview, it came as no surprise when the couple announced that they were divorcing. And then with Tyson's personal life in shambles, Don King gained even more control. King fired trainer Kevin Rooney and forced Tyson to cut off ties with everyone from his past. And that's when things really started to change. Tyson's mental and physical strength began a downward spiral that would continue for years that brings us back to where we started, the infamous fight against Buster Douglas. In the months that followed the 1990 upset against Buster Douglas, Tyson admitted he'd been taking shortcuts in his training and desperately wanted a rematch. Tyson went back in the ring in June 1990 to fight Henry Tillman. The boxer had a record of 20 and 4 and wasn't expected to be much of a challenge for Tyson. Just a way for Tyson to regain his confidence, really. And it worked. Tyson knocked out Tillman in 2 minutes and 47 seconds. After the fight, Tyson pronounced that he was still the best fighter in the universe. But he still wasn't the world champ, and neither was Buster Douglas. Because after Douglas upset Tyson, he took on Evander Holyfield in a title match. Holyfield easily knocked out an overweight and out-of-shape Douglas in the third round. So Holyfield was now the man that Tyson needed to beat to get back his title. But an ongoing feud between King and Holyfield's promoter, Shelley Finkel, stopped the two sides from agreeing on getting in the ring. Finally, though, a fight between Tyson and Holyfield was scheduled for November 1991. But Tyson had to pull out because of a rib injury he received during training. Another fight was scheduled for April 24, 1992. That one didn't happen either. Because this time, Mike Tyson was in jail. The story of how Tyson ended up in jail began in July 1991 at the Miss Black America pageant in Indianapolis. On July 18, 1991, Tyson, along with singer Johnny Gill, two bodyguards and the director of the pageant, stopped by a ballroom to meet the contestants who were practicing. That's when Tyson met 18-year-old Desiree Washington, Miss Black Rhode Island, The young woman says that Tyson asked her out and early the next morning, around 1.30 a.m., she went to his hotel room and was raped. A day later, she checked into the emergency room at Methodist Hospital and reported the rape. Mike Tyson was arrested and charged with sexual assault. Here's the local prosecutor.
1: The victim was led to believe that her meeting with Tyson was to be platonic. In fact, however, Tyson intended to have sexual relations with her when she refused... His advances, Tyson had forced non-consensual sex with the victim.
0: Six months later, in January 1992, the trial took place in Indianapolis. It was the second trial in an era that became known for high-profile celebrity trials. The first to make news in the 90s was the 1991 William Kennedy Smith rape trial in Florida. And of course, the pinnacle was the 1995 O.J. Simpson murder trial in California. Like those trials, the Tyson trial became a media circus and a public spectacle. When Tyson arrived for the first day of jury selection, fans cheered and clapped as he entered the building. Reporters from around the world jammed the courtroom and an overflow room was needed. Tyson seemed unfazed by it all. During jury selection, he calmly doodled on a pad of paper. At a press conference after court, Tyson professed his innocence and his love and respect for women.
1: You need to understand. I said I love them and I respect them. You know, I'm confused. That, you know, I mean, every incident you see someone say I pinched them or someone jumps in my jumps on top of my head or something and said he grabbed me, and I'm, you know, I mean that's, that's redundant, man. I used, like I said before knows what happened in the room. I know what happened, and I know I'm innocent.
0: That beep you heard was from media coverage at the time, censoring the victim's name, which had not yet been made public. Both Tyson and his manager, Don King, surprised everyone by using her name several times at the news conference.
1: If you're going to go out there, you should be out there on Front Street. You know what I mean?
0: When Tyson's accuser took the stand, she described what happened in the early morning hours of July 19, 1991. Desiree Washington said that Tyson called her from his limousine around 1.30 in the morning and invited her to come down so they could drive around Indianapolis. Instead of going for a drive though, she said they went back to Tyson's hotel so that he could make a phone call. They watched TV for a bit and then Tyson began making sexual advances. Washington testified that she went to the bathroom and when she came back, Tyson was in his underwear. The jury was riveted as the young woman described what happened next. She said that Tyson attacked her while repeatedly telling her not to fight back. Later that day, she finished with the pageant, placing in the top 10, and then went to the police the next day to report the assault. Tyson's legal team tried to paint the young woman as a gold digger who should have known better, During his cross-examination, lawyer Vincent J. Fuller asked, what did you think was going to happen when Mike Tyson asked you out on a date? She simply replied, I was thrilled with the idea of him asking me out. Anyone would be. She explained she just wanted to get some pictures with Tyson so she could show her father. Fuller asked if she normally considers a man's invitation to come into his bedroom as a sexual advance. Without missing a beat, Washington replied, I was fooled. Anyone can be fooled. I look at it now and yeah, it was stupid, but it didn't give him any reason to do what he did. During two days of cross-examination, Tyson's teenage accuser was unshaken, despite the ridiculous questions from the defense that implied she got what she deserved for being alone with Mike Tyson. Can you imagine this kind of cross-examination today? Let's hope it would never happen. Even the news coverage of the trial of this case was surprising. Looking back at it now, most newspapers treated it as a sports story, buried inside the paper's sports section. This could be why you don't remember many details about the case. When Mike Tyson was called to the stand, he insisted that he did not force Washington to have sex with him. In fact, he said she was a very willing participant. Tyson said, She never told me to stop. She never said I was hurting her in any way. She never said no, nothing. Tyson described a completely different version of events, which ended with them having consensual sex in his hotel room. He said that Washington got mad when he wouldn't walk her down to his limo when they were done. When the case went to the jury, they took nine and a half hours to find Tyson guilty of one count of rape and two counts of deviant sexual conduct. On March 26, 1992, Tyson was sentenced to six years in prison, along with four years of probation. And despite being 25 years old at the time of the crime, he was assigned to the Indiana Youth Center. He was released in March 1995 after serving less than three years of his sentence. Once he was out of prison, Tyson was determined to make a comeback. In September 1996, he squared off in Vegas against Bruce Seldon for the WBA Heavyweight Championship. Tyson easily defeated Seldon in a first-round knockout. In fact, it happened so quick, 1 minute and 49 seconds, that the fans screamed fake. But there was bigger news happening that night. September 7th, 1996 was also the night that Tupac Shakur was fatally shot after attending the Tyson-Seldon fight at the MGM Grand Casino. Tupac and Tyson were close friends in the 90s. And Tupac even visited Tyson while he was in jail in 1992. Two months later, on November 9th, 1996, Don King finally got Tyson the fight he'd been waiting for. He would defend his WBA championship against Evander Holyfield. Tyson, who was in financial troubles by now, would make $30 million for the fight. Holyfield, $11 million. Holyfield was the underdog heading into the fight. Vegas betting odds were 25-1 to 1 in favor of Tyson. People were actually worried that Holyfield might leave the ring on a stretcher. But man, were they wrong. Holyfield left Tyson dazed and bloodied. Holyfield delivered 15 straight punches to Tyson's head in the final seconds of the 10th round. Tyson wobbled out of his corner for the 11th round, gauze over his left eye. Within seconds, Holyfield had him trapped against the ropes. That's when the ref jumped in and called the fight. Tyson said he couldn't remember anything after the third round. He didn't know where he was or what he was doing. During the fight, Tyson had complained to the ref that Evander Holyfield had headbutted him, but the ref told him to keep fighting. When Tyson spoke to the media after the fight, he was still a bit dazed and surprisingly humble. He said, Holyfield fought a good fight. I take my hat off to him. I look forward to a rematch. That's right, another rematch. Promoter Don King immediately began working on a rematch. He said, don't write Tyson off. We're going to dance again. We're going to see if we can put together the greatest rematch in the history of boxing. The rematch happened six months later. By now, Mike Tyson was 30 years old. He seemed more mature, almost mellow. And his priorities had changed. Tyson had four kids at this point and a fifth on the way. He said he was fighting now to build his kids a nest egg, to give them the childhood and the life he never had. They would get quite a nice nest egg from the rematch against Holyfield, set to take place in June 97. Again, Tyson would make $30 million for the fight. This time, Holyfield was getting $35 million. At the time, it was the largest single event payout in history. The Sound and the Fury as the fight was called became one of the most bizarre and infamous fights in boxing history. Mike Tyson enters the ring 2 days short of his 31st birthday with his very future as a top-line heavyweight on the line. Even though he was defeated in the previous fight, Tyson went in the favorite, but just slightly. Vegas betting odds were 2 to 1 in his favor. But like the last time, after the first two rounds, Holyfield was easily winning. Tyson complained that Holyfield had headbutted him again in the second round. As the third round was about to begin, Tyson came out of his corner without his mouthpiece. The ref ordered him to put it in, and the fight resumed. Then near the end of the round, Tyson spit out his mouthpiece and bit a chunk out of Holyfield's right ear. The ref penalized Tyson 2 points and allowed the fight to continue.
1: A very angry Evander Holyfield now. A left you know funny. Tyson. Mike was having his best He, again. he, beat he beat him him again. Again.
0: Seconds after fighting resumed, Holyfield was stomping up and down, angry and in obvious discomfort. Many in the audience were unsure what had occurred, and they thought maybe Tyson had hit him low. When the ref approached Holyfield's corner, he discovered that Tyson had bitten Holyfield again, this time taking off the top of his ear. Tyson, this time, was immediately disqualified from the fight. Chaos erupted inside and outside the ring. Holyfield's corner man started screaming at Tyson, which triggered Tyson to charge Holyfield's corner. A police officer was knocked over in the mayhem. Security guards pulled Tyson off, and then minutes later, Tyson stormed Holyfield's corner again.
1: He seems possessed right now. He cannot be brought under control.
0: When Tyson and his group finally left the ring, they were booed and pelted with hot dogs and beer by the crowd. Tyson and his handlers even made a brief attempt to jump into the stands, which caused another mini-riot. The MGM Grand was even forced to close for several hours after the fight because of reported gunfire. Gamblers fearing for their lives jumped under blackjack tables and behind slot machines. Later, Tyson said he bit Holyfield in retaliation for several headbutts that cut him above the eye. What am
1: I to do? This is my career. I can't continue getting butted like that. I got children to raise and this guy keeps butting me trying to cut me and get me stopped on cut. I got to retaliate.
0: Two days later, Tyson apologized for what he called the worst night of his career. He asked to be forgiven for snapping in the ring and doing something he never should have done. Holyfield accepted his apology, but it wasn't enough for boxing officials. The Nevada State Athletic Commission revoked Tyson's boxing license and fined him $3 million for the biting incident. But the ban wasn't permanent. Tyson was entitled to reapply after a year, and he did just that. A little over a year after the bite fight, Mike Tyson was allowed back in the ring. During his time away from boxing in 1998, Tyson was still out there. He made a guest appearance at WrestleMania 14 as an enforcer for the main event match between Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin, and he was paid $3 bucks. Sports broadcaster Mark Hebsher says no matter what, Tyson was never far from the spotlight in the 90s.
1: And in those days too, There were so many of those types of programs, um, like uh, uh, Inside Edition and that type of thing, where every night they just, the, the news wheel just had, you know, what's up with Mike Tyson every single day. He was in the news every day for years. Anything he did, you know, getting gas, there's a picture of Mike Tyson.
0: As the decade came to a close, Tyson was in hot water again for assaulting two motorists following a traffic accident. On February 5th, 1999, Tyson was sentenced to another year in jail. He served nine months of that sentence. This is where I'm going to end the story of Mike Tyson. But obviously, his story is far from over. It spanned decades beyond what we looked at in this podcast. He's a larger-than-life personality and has dabbled in movies, Broadway, and an animated kids show. His legal and financial issues continue and he's been sued a bunch of times and declared bankruptcy. But in recent years, he's attempted to reinvent himself as a kinder, gentler version of Iron Mike. A Sports Illustrated feature a couple of years ago said the baddest man on the planet is now a suburban dad, wearing white New Balance shoes and dad jeans. He has seven kids and is on his third marriage. Today, he is founder of Tyson Ranch, a marijuana farm, and he hosts a podcast called Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson. And on November 28th, Tyson will step back in the ring at the age of 54 for an exhibition match against 51-year-old Roy Jones Jr. And even though it's an exhibition match, there is a belt on the line. The WBC has created the Frontline Championship, which will be awarded to the winner of what's being called the Frontline Battle. Mike Tyson might just have some fight left in him after all. Thanks for joining me on this look back at the ups and downs of Mike Tyson's career and personal life. If you're into 90s sports stories, make sure you go back and check out our episodes on Formula One driver Ayrton Senna and another one we did on wrestling's attitude era. If you've got an idea for a show, whether it's sports or whatever it is, I'd love to hear from you. Please drop me a line at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. You can also reach me through Twitter at 1990 History and on Instagram and Facebook. I love hearing from our listeners. Even if you don't have an episode suggestion, just reach out to say hi. I'd love to hear from you. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please don't forget to rate and review us. This episode was co-written by me, Kathy Gonzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production was by Rob Johnston. And thanks to Mark Hebsher for lending his voice. Make sure you check out his podcast, Hebzy on Sports. See you next time for more History of the 90s.